Hey, and welcome to the I Thought the Lore podcast, the uh, podcast where we try to look at things from a different perspective. We're not saying they're right or wrong. We're just going to stand them up and uh, see if we can pick them apart a little bit. Sometimes we fight them. Often they win. Uh, I am Ben McDewey. Sitting across from me here is Rico Sweets from the Mean Streets. Uh, say hi there, Rico. Hello from the Mean Streets of any town. North America. <laughs> That's right. I've lived it all. I've seen it all. And I guess I'm still living it all. <laughs> Absolutely. Unless I'm a ghost. Which maybe I'm a ghost. How do you know? What do you know? That's what do we know about ghosts? Well, you know what? I mean, we don't know Jack Squat, but we can certainly, uh, we can certainly, you know, take a closer look at them and, uh, See what ghosts can do for us, both as uh, people and as a society and through history. And, you know, for something that doesn't exist, it certainly has an impact on, you know, the way we see things and the way we do things. And, yeah, I think we, we can find a couple of pretty good examples of that. Let's roll it back a couple seconds here where you said they don't exist. What do you mean they don't exist? How do you know they don't exist? Just because nobody's ever actually seen one or gotten, you know, conclusive proof of one doesn't mean they don't exist. No, other than that, absolutely. The complete lack of empirical evidence aside, no, I'm, sh I'm sure there's a, I'm sure there's potential there. And a lot of people do believe in these, in these things. Okay, that's fine, you know. Live your life, believe in a ghost if you want. Try not to let it take over your life because some people can make some really wacky decisions. You mean like try and get a podcast off the ground? Yeah. <laughs> But hey, whatever, man. You know, let's let's not crap on these people. No, because no. sometimes people like to live their dream or dream the way they want to live. Couldn't have said it better myself. I have a question for you for this possibly inaugural podcast of I Fought the Lore. What exactly is a poltergeist? Okay, well, I mean, I've heard the term banded about in uh in pop culture uh poltergeists usually um they like to throw things around they like to move things um they like to spawn very popular early 80s horror movies Some that's more that's, popular than the other yes yes and uh a couple you know i would say possibly curse the actors in said movies but that might be another story for another time Yes, uh, the, the famous curse based around, uh, well, Poltergeist itself, and also The Exorcist. That's um, true. But that wasn't really a poltergeist. However, that brings me to my first point. A poltergeist, okay, the name comes from the German loosely translated as noisy ghost. Okay? So it is a ghost that makes noise. It is a ghost that bangs things around. Hmm. But can any ghost become a poltergeist? Or is a poltergeist its own category of ghost? Like, to quote a movie, a uh, free-floating repeater. Right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, just something that uh, repeats the same actions over and over again. If that free-floating repeater then starts throwing things around, is it reclassified as a poltergeist? Or is it the ghost is exhibiting poltergeist uh, activity or uh, traits? Because... Other things, you know, can throw things around too. Some poltergeists are known for not just throwing things around, but uh, scratching people. 
Mm -hmm. Making them feel like something's biting them, pushing them, pulling their hair. Some start fires. So what is the classification of a poltergeist or is a poltergeist something that can be added to any classification of other type of spirits? Because remember, demons can also bite you and scratch you and pull your hair and mm -hmm. throw you downstairs. And, and uh, it's funny you mentioned the poltergeist that throw things around because this is something I was thinking about the other day and that, you know, you look at things like, you know, the Battersea poltergeist or the Enfield poltergeist, uh, these documented cases of, of objects being thrown through the air. But, you know, for, for something that has or is meant to have a very threatening air, uh, you know, the Enfield poltergeist in particular, you know, some of the first things that uh, are done are you have boxes of pillows, yeah. you know, and it's Legos. like, yeah. yeah, and it's like, so you're telling me that this thing is going to exert energy to try to scare or intimidate the people living in its house or in its space. You have a selection of butcher's knives and cinder blocks and glass and other very sharp you know, objects that can injure someone. And it's like, mm, well, hey, that that bag of feathers over there. Yeah, yeet that across the room. Um, that'll do wonders to... to it, it does make me kind of question the intent of a lot of these things when, you know, you have these otherworldly uh, spirits choosing to uh, try and intimidate or uh, harass the living with very soft, squishy projectiles. Something that a small child would... Be likely to pick up and throw at somebody very um, like a small yeah you know like a just like a small child which brings me to another point some definitions of poltergeist through people who have studied these things classify a poltergeist as not a ghost but as a latent psychic energy that is unconsciously controlled by a child usually a girl going through puberty but oh. not always a girl sometimes it's a little boys mm -hmm. but some adolescent going through puberty suddenly is exerting this psychic kinetic force and they are unconsciously causing these things to happen okay now this is the story that we're going to get into this week actually involves a little boy mm -hmm. from the city of st catharines ontario in canada hmm. and this is a poltergeist that for a while got a lot of press but it is a very specific time in the 1970s and only for a little while and then kind of seems to have fallen out of um, the consciousness of people who, you know, look at these things and read. I see it mentioned here or there, but not nearly as frequently as some of its more famous counterparts. I think uh, it's funny that you mentioned that too. I think part of, and I, I, I don't know if that's the case here, but you were saying that this latent psychic energy is there a way to separate a poltergeist haunting? You know, if you a lot of people's first point of reference would be, say, the movie, you know, the popular movie from '82, maybe. I, I think. think so. Early '80s. Early '80s, and you know, you look at the idea of the poltergeist haunting a house or a space versus haunting a person. Something that links the two different definitions usually comes together at a point where both of them agree that there is a malicious nature to it and it more focuses on a person though it can affect many at once say the whole family but it's usually concentrated on one single person so in essence it seems 
a unifying point of both is that they sort of focus on haunting a person and not a place. So is that where kind of where you say that things sort of fall out of the public's attention because it's not necessarily a location that develops the reputation for the haunting, but it's the person. And if the person moves on or, or grows up or moves on with their life, it's not like there's a certain place that you can return to to say, you know, like, if you go here, things are still happening. You know, a lot of these so-called haunted places, you know, regardless of how old they are, the, the belief is whether it's 1857 or 2023, you can visit these places and, and possibly see or experience the same things that people have been for, you know, decades. years, right? Yeah. yeah. Whereas with the poltergeist, like, I don't know if there's places where poltergeist activity is attached to a specific location where if you go somewhere, you could possibly have something thrown at you versus you have people that experienced the hauntings originally and then whatever happened to them since then that kind of dictates where the haunting goes i guess if that makes sense yeah it seems most of the stories that i've read specifically dealing with poltergeist whether it's the belief that the ghost is is responsible there is a ghost responsible for these uh things moving about being thrown about people being levitated you know fires being started when a specific individual seems to leave most of the time the ghost goes with them same thing with the latent psychic energy theory that when the person gets to a certain age or after a certain amount of time it either slows down stops completely but it doesn't seem to stay at the location it seems to follow the individual so we have saint catharines ontario canada I don't know what the population of the place is now, over 100,000. It's sort of a medium city in the uh, southwestern section of Ontario, I guess you'd call it. Yeah, in the, in the Golden Horseshoe. Yeah, so it's about 20 minutes away from Niagara Falls. It's about an hour away from Toronto. South of Toronto, north of Niagara Falls, kind of right in that middle there. And there's a few people of note that have come from uh, St. Catharines. So to start off with, Dave Thomas actor and comedian, not the guy who started Wendy's. Different guy. He is from St. Catharines. Uh, he played the pharmacist Russell Norton on the TV show Grace Under Fire. He's also known as being Doug from Bob and Doug McKenzie. Ah, uh, yes. For people of a certain vintage, they're going to get that. A certain vintage. That's Other a good... people are not. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Uh, uh, Anna Olson, uh, who used to be on the Food Network, uh, she had a bakery in St. Catharines at one point. Um, if anybody's ever heard of the band Alexis on Fire, I don't think they're very popular outside of the area, but I think most of them were from, uh, were from St. Catharines. Um, Neil Peart, the drummer and lyricist from Rush, he was raised in St. Catharines, and he, they've actually got a song called Lakeside Park, was where it was written about where he lived in Port Luce. Did not know that. Um, but... Really, that's the, those are the most notable ones that I found when I was looking uh, when I was looking up some of uh, some of the stuff from the area. I got that from Wikipedia, by the way. There's others <laughs> listed, but if you haven't heard of them, you probably won't have heard of any of the others either. I think if if I if I can throw another sort of movie related nugget in there, if I'm not mistaken, I feel like is it that uh, is it the Christmas movie? The, uh, oh, A Christmas Story? Yeah. Parts might have been filmed in St. Catharines. The Niagara region has appeared in a few films. Mm -hmm. um, 
was it? Uh, the Dead Zone. Oh, yes. With Stephen King. The um, ice is going to break. Yep. Yep. The ice is definitely going to break. Uh, they filmed one of the scenes just outside of St. Catharines, closer to Niagara Falls. Uh, there's a scene with a tunnel where they find a body in the tunnel, and that was filmed at an area called Screaming Tunnels. And I believe there is a, a gazebo. Um, in the town of Niagara-on-the-Lake yes. that was built specifically for the movie. Um, wasn't part of Niagara-on-the-Lake, but apparently they liked it so much after the film was done. Several years had gone by, and it hadn't been taken very uh, care of very well. Um, pardon me. Hadn't been taken care of very well. And the city actually restored it because it's just an ice gazebo. But oh, it was nice. specifically built to film a scene in Niagara-on-the-Lake for the movie The Dead Zone. Interesting. But enough about those cities, because <laughs> we're talking about St. Catharines, and we're talking about St. Catharines Poltergeist. So this story takes place in 1970. It was actually February of 1970, the majority of it takes place. A lot of people will know of more famous characters from other Poltergeist stories, but few people have heard of Peter, which is the alias of this young boy. Uh, he was 11 years old, and for several weeks in February of 1970, he was reportedly the victim of a poltergeist at 237 Church Street in St. Catharines. Coincidentally, um, while I'm doing my research, I realized that room 237 in the Overlook Hotel in the film version of The Shining is also very hot. 237, a real-life case of poltergeist. 237, a film version of a haunted room. Has nothing to do with anything. I just wanted to throw it in there because in the actual book by Stephen King, it was actually written 217. And if, if, you, if you're on the uh, Stanley Kubrick conspiracy train, I believe it's also 237,000 kilometers to the moon, which is part of the whole the whole hidden message thing that. Oh, that, and Danny's got the uh, Danny's uh, got the yep. the Apollo 11 yep. sweater on. Yep. Oh my so lord! Just just taking that rabbit hole just a little farther than it needs to go, but you know. First episode we've ever recorded, possibly the first one that may ever be released by us, not a podcast in general. We're, <laughs> we're, we're getting on this thing a little late, folks. Uh, but man, we're just, we're, we're cracking open the conspiracy. You know My what? God. That might be something we'll have to um, look at farther down the road. Oh, yeah. I don't know how much material there is there. It might be a lot further down the road. <laughs> okay, so 237 Church Street, St. Catharines, Ontario. The story was an attention grabber when it happened, right? So uh, it was picked up by a local newspaper, and then it made its way into a more national newspaper. It was picked up by U.S. stories, and Johnny Carson even mentioned it in one of his Tonight Show monologues. Again, people of a certain vintage are going to know who Johnny Carson is, or was. Not so many now. But this was back in the 70s, so for a very short period of time in the 1970s, this was a pretty big deal. Um... But, you know, as the story petered out, yeah, that's right, I said it, uh, the phenomenon went quiet and the story eventually passed into relative obscurity. It's only, it's only mentioned here and there, even within our popular YouTube channels and things like that that deal with paranormal and stories. You, you will come across it, but you kind of got to do a little digging. There's much more famous cousins to this story that get all of the attention and especially when you take into consideration that first of all you have this happening in a less than metropolitan area you know that we're not talking about 
you know, um, we're not talking about like the UK. We're not talking about some place in the United States where, you know, people are just much more aware of these places in general. You're talking about a small town in Ontario, Canada in the 70s, not really the first place anyone thinks of when they think of, of, of popular cases of hauntings. And when you start getting into cases like this that deal with aliases and pseudonyms, it makes it much muddier to try and even become aware of these things, right? Because it's not like you have a, a, a first and last name that you can Google to find out more about. You have someone who's only known by Peter. Right. So right. that doesn't really help things either. Yeah. Exactly. So you're, you're, you're talking about a more relatively obscure story here. But one of the more interesting things about this story, as compared with others, is the witness testimonies. It wasn't just anecdotes from friends and family. It wasn't just something along the lines of, oh, you know, my sister's my sister's husband was interviewed on TV because, you know, his, his family apparently was part of this whole haunting. And the guy from down the street came to fix a pipe because they thought it was a leaky pipe or making some knocking noises. No. The big chunk of witnesses for this story are police officers from St. Catherine's Police Service. There were three or four police officers that were apparently directly involved in this story and were direct witnesses of the occurrences. Now, is this a situation where the police were, you know, just making this up? Just because you have a, a certain profession, it doesn't mean you can't play pranks. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean you can't exaggerate things. It doesn't mean that you can't, you know, pull a fast one on somebody or create a funny story to entertain people with. But also, there's apparently an official police report from 1970, February, that deals with this. See, now this is where it gets cool because, you know, against what I was saying earlier where you have things like aliases and, and cases from, from smaller out-of-the-way places that make it difficult to, to research. You know, when you, when you look at something like a police report, you know, now that's something tangible. That's something you can, you know, I, I wouldn't do, try it now, but, you know, that's something you could put into Google to say, hey, 1970s St. Catherine's police report. And, you know, there's every possibility that you could get linked to a facsimile of the official report that someone, I'm assuming, filled out. Yeah. Yeah. But here's the question. I have seen this police report on Google. You can find it in Google Images. I have seen it on a couple of YouTube stories that deal with this. Is it an official police report from the St. Catharines Police in the 1970s? Looks official, but I've never seen a police report from the 1970s. I've never seen a police report from now. I have no idea what an official police report looks like, what kind of language they use in it, anything like that. Is this thing legit? Very possible. Is it fake? Very possible as well, because I couldn't tell you, from, you know, a hole in the ground what an official police report looks like. Now, the one thing I will say is, I mean, I, 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 I'm not familiar with this story. I don't know how much evidence there is. I mean, we're looking at the 70s. So, yeah, you know, um, the idea of video and still photography is not going to be super accessible. I mean... You know, people had, what, like Polaroids and stuff, but I mean, they're not, yeah. it's not something that's super readily available. So I would imagine, I don't know if the lack of 
photo or video evidence from a research standpoint than this would make the police report more or less important because it would seem odd that of all the possible kinds of evidence you could have, the police report, like I feel like there'd be sexier things to fake if it was going to be a prank, like faking I, a photo, faking saying, a yeah. video, to, 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 to have all that to be like, hmm, you know, like if we're going to try and... If we're going to try and you know make people believe that this is something that happened, what can we, what can we sort of manufacture that will that will make this believable? You know, well, you know, we could we could fake a photo, we could you know do some kind of cheesy video. No, no, let's fake a police report. Like it does, it does seem like a weird thing to choose if you're going to fake anything. So that I find it odd that yeah, like you say, like of all the things that there could be out there that would that would point to this actually having happened. A police report is one of the stranger things you could you could find. True. But to play devil's advocate, if you're a police officer and you and your buddies are kind of having a ha-ha, making a joke about something or coming up with a story to entertain or spook one of your friends or something, police report is something that you would do. True. From all accounts, this was an official report and these are official experiences that these police officers actually saw and encounter. So I'm going to start a little bit with um, the building itself. Okay. I've seen pictures of the building. It's apparently for sale right now. It is, uh, according to the photos that I've seen, it is a two-story yellow brick building. It's got a storefront business at the front. It was recently a pizza place, but I guess it's closed now. It has two ground floor apartments and then four more apartments above on the second story. Okay. And it's there. I mean, it's a building. You can look this up on Google Maps. And reportedly, there has been no more haunting experiences after this point in the 1970s. So, um, but it's there. It's a place. It's a place you can see on Google Maps. And if you go to St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada, unless they ripped it down in the last few months, the place is still there. Which, which is something I was going to mention, too, is this idea of, you know, the other thing that makes a lot of these, these investigations so hard to do is that... The location in question is, you know, 90% of the time is either private property that can't be accessed or has long been since burned down, torn down, destroyed yep. and turned into something else. So to have a place that has this reputation, that has this backstory and to have it still exist, is pretty cool. You know, yeah. um, again, it's not the kind of place that, you know, we're not suggesting anyone go and, you know, break in to look around. Um but at the same time, it is kind of cool to know that this place, it, it, it's still standing same, you know, it's still standing right exactly where it used to. It's still, for, for all intents and purposes, the building is still exactly as it was, you know, um, 40, 40 some odd years ago. Yeah. And if it was still a pizza place, I mean, I might go get a slice. But yeah, that's probably it. I, from the looks of the place... Um, I'm not going to see about renting an apartment there. Uh, I didn't see any pictures inside, but I did see some pictures of the street, and it doesn't look like a great part of town. But let's start by talking and starting the story, but we're also going to start with one of the primary witnesses, and this was Bob Crawford. Bob Crawford was a police officer who was first on the scene on February 10th. Um, another report that I read said that it was the 6th, but everything else says that it was the 10th, so I don't know who got it wrong, where, or why they got it wrong, but for all intents and purposes, every other story suggests that it was February 10th. 
and he was in the building for a domestic disturbance in one of the other apartments. Okay. So he hadn't even been called for reports of a ghost. There was a domestic. He was called to go calm somebody down, and... So, so people were being scratched and items were being thrown, but for a completely different reason. Yes. Okay. Yes. So I guess by the time he got there, things had calmed down and it was really a non-issue. So he was actually on his way out. But while he was leaving, another tenant called him over to her apartment. And from what I read, it was apartment one. Okay. Now, I'm not sure if it was apartment one that he was on the call for that turned out to be a non-issue. And then he was called to another one. But everything mentions apartment one. Um, and that is when he actually began witnessing the paranormal activity. So he's about to leave. It's like the domestic disturbance, not a big deal. I'm about to go. And somebody says, oh, officer, I need your help over here. Probably not in that kind of creepy, wavery <laughs> voice. But he gets called over and it was a woman. And he says, what's wrong, ma'am? When Officer Crawford entered the apartment, he said it was in disarray. The woman living there with her husband and two sons said furniture and objects had been moving on their own, things had been thrown by unseen hands, furniture had been toppled and levitated, and that it had already been going on for 10 days. So these people had been living with this for 10 days, not called the police, and only decided to get the police involved when they saw a police officer on the property about to leave. So this was, so, so I mean, if we're looking at timeline we're looking at about i guess about the first of february about yeah but there's going to be even more in a few minutes so after hearing the woman's story listening and i guess trying to calm her down his partner arrives now his partner thought he was backing him up on the domestic call okay when he said no 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 that's a non-issue this is a situation though um his partner's name, let me find if I can find his name. Um, his name was Weir. Officer Weir. Okay. I don't know if I have a first name. Uh, but when Weir got there, they were both in the apartment with the woman. Doesn't mention that the kids and the husband were there. I'm assuming they were. Um, but I guess they determined somehow that everything was centered on this young boy, Peter. And Officer Crawford determined the best thing to do was to call a local priest. <laughs> that, that, uh, I mean, I, I don't know how they did things in small town Ontario, but that does seem like a bizarre chain of command to me that you have a patrol officer, you know, basically radioing dispatch, um, you know, essentially saying, um, yeah, this is, uh, this is Officer Crawford at the domestic hill here on Church Street. Um, you know, we, we've encountered a situation. Can you please send an, a young priest and an old priest? <laughs> well, you have to have the young priest and the old priest, it's right? True. It's true. It's the dynamic. It's just the way things work. So they called the local priest. But guess what? When the priest arrived, Crawford was shocked to learn that he was well aware of what was going on because he'd already been in contact with the family. So, okay, wait, okay, so... So the family had been in contact with the priest. Yeah. Uh, well, the, the family had been in contact with a priest prior to the police happening by because of this domestic. A local Roman Catholic priest in St. Catharines, Ontario. And it just so happened that the 
priest the police were put in contact with happened to be the same. Well, I mean, not that I would imagine there's a, you know, there's a ton of Roman Catholic priests hanging around in St. Catharines at this time, but it just seems odd that that it winds up being the same guy. You are on a street called Church Street. I suppose that's true. I'm okay. Just saying. Um, so the priest arrives and says he knows what's going on and he's also witnessed things himself. Okay, so we have, so do we have a name for this priest? I wasn't able to find one. Apparently, um, I got a lot of this information over a couple different sources. One of the sources claims that they uh, tracked down the priest who mm -hmm. now works in a city in southern Ontario named Welland. Um, okay. But he did not want to be interviewed said that he didn't have anything to say mm -hmm. and the interviewer the the person who tracked him down respected his privacy did not publish his name now i i have to i do have to clap it out for this priest um you know there there are so many times when you have stories like this where the witnesses involved are more than happy to share their story usually for a price or for some sort of notoriety or to um, you know, garner attention or perhaps for a book they're writing. So, you know, for someone who witnessed something supposedly very extraordinary and then to have them turn around and say, you know what, no comment, you know, I don't have anything that I want to share about this. You know, I, I think that's, that's respectable. And if anything kind of lends more credence to what happened because you're not, you're not looking at it from the standpoint of, yeah, you want to hear, I'll, I'll tell you all about it. You know, like, for a fee, I'll whatever you want to hear, right? Like that's a very good point. So now, what do we have for pr multiple police officers? Mm -hmm. We have supposedly an official report. Mm -hmm. We have a Roman Catholic priest who was involved, um, did not wish to be interviewed, didn't want to talk about. It. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that kind of leans you in the direction of maybe this is something that actually happened. Of course. When you can't name a witness, that also gives the impression that maybe somebody's just making them up. True. Yeah. But, you know, you want to give the benefit of the doubt, especially if police officers were involved in this. Um, so the priest apparently uh, said, told the officers that when he was there, he watched a bed in one of the rooms push itself away from one of the walls. When he pushed the bed back against the wall, it then moved itself out again without anything helping him. Hmm. So now we've got the family. We've got the mother, we've got the father, we've got the two kids. We have police officer. We have Roman Catholic priest. Everybody's gathered around. They're talking about what's going on. Okay? They're all kind of getting their story out. They're, they're, the police are trying to calm everybody down. This fantastic information is coming out. And they're in the kitchen police officer decides, let's move into the living room where everybody's going to be a little more comfortable. They then all move into the living room. Police officer and the priest are on their way out, takes one of the kitchen chairs that's in the middle of the room, somebody who's sitting in it, moves it back to its place at the table. They all go into the living room. Everybody kind of takes a seat. Police officer and the priest are standing there, and they hear disembodied footsteps who passed them. Apparently, both of them agreed something walked past. Everybody, nobody else was walking past them, but they heard footsteps move past them and go into the kitchen. Officer Crawford takes a look, goes into the kitchen to check what's going on. 
and he sees the chair that he had just moved back into its position at the table has moved itself out into the middle of the room. Hmm. So, that's kind of crazy. Everybody in the apartment is with you in a room, including the Catholic priest, but who's in there to move that chair away when the officer is certain that he moved the chair back to its position? I find it interesting that they heard the disembodied footsteps, but did not hear the chair slide across the floor, which has a very, depending on if it was a tile or a wooden floor, I mean, you would hear, You're hear something. you would hear drag. a dragging, yeah. Um, so it was interesting that unless the chair sort of floated to its position in the middle of the floor. As though somebody picked it up and moved it, it, set it down. as opposed to, yeah, as, as opposed to just dragging it. So by this time, Officer Weir has arrived. This is okay. his backup who thought he was coming for the uh, for the domestic that wasn't. <laughs> I can see this guy just like kicking the door in, gun drawn, you know, yelling, everybody down, everybody down. And yeah. everyone's just kind of like, just kind of, you know, snaps around and looks at him. And they're, they're all sitting very comfortably, if not a little bit uh, unnerved in the living room. And he's, you know, expecting to be, you know, uh, crash in some kind of a crisis. And uh, is just looking around and, Crawford's like, damn it, Weir, would you put the gun away? Like, just just relax, all right? Come here. Not again, rookie. <laughs> holster that holster that smoke show. <laughs> yep. Not, which I guess fair play to, to, to Weir not really knowing what was going on. Because, I mean, even, even if he was, you know, kicking the door down to make some kind of action movie entrance... I mean, I don't know what good a gun would have done, you know, given what the uh, what the situation involved. So that's that's kind of funny. Well, man, there's going to be an upcoming story at some point uh, that has to do with um, has to do with a particular location in London that I've always been fascinated with. And uh, there's three different stories, and in three different stories to confront the ghost, people bring guns. It always it always reminds me of the uh, you know that was one of the things we used we always used to make fun of with the. Uh, Stargate, this idea of, you know, Kurt Russell and his special mission, special operations soldiers uh, crossing through a dimensional portal to this other realm where clearly the, the answer to any sort of crisis is to draw your weapons and just fill whatever comes over the first hill full of lead, right? Like that's just the classic, you know, the classic confrontation styles, whether it's across the across the street or across the universe, you know, just, just put your trust in bullets. Hey man, unless they're Kryptonian, how do you know? That's true. Yeah. Officer Crawford, in there. Weird busts in, like you said. <laughs> gun drawn. Everybody on the floor! <laughs> but he's the one who's shocked when he finds out what's actually been going on. Um, but he's not as shocked as you might expect. Because he has been there before for a similar call. Okay. So, okay. So I, I retract my, my previous statement. Chances are... If he's been there before, he knows his address. It's not going to be the whole kick the door down, gun drawn thing. Because I would assume that he he knows what kind of go. Which I find kind of interesting that apparently this Crawford guy seems to be the only one here who's in the dark. Like Weir knows what's going on, the priest knows what's going on, the family's been dealing with it. So this Crawford guy, he's he's sort of like, okay, could somebody explain this to me? Because yeah. everyone around him seems to have a have a pretty good clue of what's what's happening. Well. Here's here's what Weir tells him when he comes in. A month before, January 15th, 1970, he's called to the same building over a noise complaint. The complaint was because there was noise at all hours of the day. But after investigating, he found no cause, 
a building inspector was called, determined that the building was in good condition, there would be no cause for these noises. The gas company was even called to inspect the premises and the piping and to see if there was um, any sort of, I don't know, air in the pipes that could be causing the bang. Because remember, this is back in the 70s. You're not getting a lot of, you're not getting a lot of uh, forced air furnaces. You've got hot water heating. You've got uh, things like that can make banging noises. Okay, and that was going to be my, my next question was going to be, you know, with the noise complaint. So it was, it was banging sounds specifically that the complaint was regarding. It was noises at all hours of the night, banging. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cause I just like when it said noises, I just wasn't sure what type of noise we're yeah. talking. I don't know if the police do this today, but back in the seventies, when there was a noise complaint, they took this seriously, at least in St. Catherine. <laughs> they called the gas company. They called utilities. They called the city building inspector mm -hmm. to look this stuff over. And they could find that there was no cause for the noise. All the utilities were working properly. The building was a good sound condition. And that was it. What are you going to do? I was there for some noises. Couldn't figure out what the noises were. That was that. And he moved on. But it is now the 11th of February. The family says they have been being harassed in their apartment by whatever is going on since at least the 1st of February. And now we are saying there was something going on in the apartment building in general since the 15th of January. Hmm. So this is going from one night to 10 days to now 15 days. Yeah. So something, something's been going on in this part, whether it's all connected or whether it's all, you know, uh, circumstance, whether it's all coincidence, we don't know. But you've got two police officers involved, Catholic priests now, and that's not all. But like, wait, there's more. By that night, uh, you've got... We're backing up Crawford, he, and they would witness some more strange occurrences, both of them. Uh, there was a wooden shelf above a radiator, which held bowling trophies. Weir claimed that the trophies began falling off the shelf one after another for no rhyme or reason, but it wasn't just they were falling over, it looked as though they were being tossed off the shelf onto the floor. So there was like a little arc to it, it wasn't just sort of like sliding to the front and then falling off. This was. They, there was a small kind of like they were up and over like they were and, being yeah that's what it sounds like um weir was also in the kitchen and saw a clock on the wall slide itself up the wall and then back down the wall one report said it unplugged itself and the clock slowly fell to the ground without crashing like it was being lowered kind of by yeah unseen hands after that night along with a couple other officers uh mike mckinnon i think McKinnonin, McKinnonin, and Richard College, the four officers decided that they would all periodically check in with the family daily and note any occurrences. And these two other gentlemen apparently noticed things themselves, were told things when they weren't there. Um, so the following days resulted in several more calls, which were made to the police, and all of them seemingly witnessed more unexplained events. Uh, officers claimed that the center of the disturbance was an 11-year-old son, Peter, and that when he walked through the apartment, pictures on the wall swayed back and forth as though it was in the wake of something. As he passed, like an unseen energy or wind was blowing things around behind him, shaking the pictures on the walls. Wow. They also claimed that the boy was shoved against the wall by an unseen force, and 
as he sat in a heavy chair, the chair was levitated, the chair flipped itself over and pinned him to the ground, and it took two police officers to wrench it off of him. Hmm. At another point in the living room, multiple people were sitting on the couch, and the couch itself levitated at least a foot off the ground. Four adults were seated on it, and one of them became so afraid they fainted. It's it's interesting, this idea of, if going back to the beginning, you mentioned this uh, idea of latent psychic energy, and it's, it, it's crazy to think that this latent psychic, like when I think of that, I think of this as being the kid is sort of the, the source of everything happening like externally around him. Yeah. But then there's clearly, there's clearly events where things are happening to him as well. So it's sort of like he's either being victimized by this power that he has within himself or, you know, there's something other than just him that's that's at play that's here. doing it. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of where you get the two different schools of thought or the more than two different schools of thought where... Um, is it a ghost that is targeting you or is it energy that you're creating but you aren't controlling so it's doing what it's doing around you and sometimes to you without any rhyme or reason mm -hmm. uh, there are other stories where it seems that one person would be the center of the activity but the negative things were happening to the people around them. in this case though things seem to be happening specifically to peter they're mostly affecting him. One of the officers sat Peter down on his knee, and I don't know if it was to try to calm him down or just to see what was going to happen in proximity to the child, but an invisible force tried to remove him, and it took the full strength, again, of two officers to keep the child seated on the officer's knee. Wow. Yeah. Uh, at another point, Peter was laying in bed. The bed began to levitate. Scared the kid so bad, he jumped off and the bed floated back down to the ground. The officer came in to see what was going on, turned around to see if Peter was okay, and when he looked back, the bed was suddenly not levitating, but had been risen up and two chairs scooted under the bed, which were then holding the bed up in the air. Hmm. And it's interesting, the idea of, again, this I, like, I mean, okay, the bowling trophies aside, it's, it's neat to think about this this balance between you know this ghost will throw or toss certain objects around very carelessly but then move or raise and lower other objects very gently yeah um you know it's almost you you would almost expect that if this kid was to be levitated in the bed and then he gets freaked out jumps out of the bed rather than the bed just dropping to the floor um you know it was it was it was it still managed to be lowered gently as as if to not disturb the people downstairs yeah um, or as though a bed would be too expensive to break and maybe if somebody was baking this you know you didn't really want to be breaking things you can't afford to yeah replace. like it, 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 it's it's funny that the uh the forces at play here have a very strange respect for for certain pieces of property and and they're clearly not big fans of bowling well, I mean, really, who is? Let's be serious. Um, but here's the thing. I mean, like you said, respect for some things, no respect for others. Pictures fell from the walls, lamps were knocked over, dressers were moved away from the wall, but then moved back. A chair levitated, but then slammed itself back into the floor. Sounds like something wants attention. 
One night, uh, the police decided to, uh, it was probably the best for the children not to be there. Maybe this was the first night, I'm not sure. When I was reading this, it was all kind of jumbled together. Uh, but they asked the father to make arrange arrangements for the kids to spend the night somewhere else. And as the kids were preparing to leave, a bookcase was knocked over. So when you say kids, is this all both of them? Both of the children. So including Peter? Yes. Okay. Uh, so the only objects in the, in the apartment reportedly that weren't affected were a crucifix and a picture of the Virgin Mary. Hmm. Okay, so going back to my, you know, smattering of knowledge on these things from just, again, having seen different movies and having heard various stories and stuff, it's funny how in this case, those are the two objects that aren't messed with when you normally hear stories about this kind of activity. You know, a lot of the times those will be the things that are either attacked first or attacked most aggressively. So it's interesting that, I mean, if I was to make a wild assumption about this, you know, the fact that any of this religious iconography was not touched and not harmed, my assumption would be that this entity or this energy's um, intentions weren't, weren't demonic, and I hate using that word, but... You know, I, it's weird that there is, like you mentioned, there was some level of reverence to those items in particular, as opposed to those being the items that would have been damaged or ruined right away. Yeah. Now, there's also the possibility that this story, even though it's not that popular, has been passed around here or there since the 1970s. Yep. Maybe this is just something that was added after the fact to, mm -hmm. you know, put a different spin on it, right? So just out of curiosity, like you were saying about things having been added since the 1970s, do we know if anybody has written a book or has there been any sort of, uh, I guess, I don't want to say strictly that, you know, money, money being made from this, but, you know, what has there ever been an attempt by anyone to sort of dramatize this like i say like in a book spice things up here and there for the sake of the reader well i will say that the majority of what i got came from a couple different sources um one was uh, a source from the website insaga.com i-n-s-a-u-g-a.com and it was a story titled haunted St. Catherine's Building Still Standing 50 Years Later by Don Richmond. That was, or that, Don Redmond, pardon me. That was published in March 4th, 2022. Okay, that's very recent. There was another source, uh, The Poltergeist of St. Catherine's, Ontario. It was posted on October 26, 2017 by History.ca. And it was listed as reported by Rob McConnell, the X-Zone Radio, and... Uh, was at the X Chronicles newspaper. Either way, so some, so a lot of what came out was due to a recent interview within the last ten years of these retired police officers. Very cool um, that, like I say, like 2022, 2017, like these are all these are, these are people sort of, you know, keeping this story alive and and reinvestigating it, you know, quite recently. Yep. There's also another uh, another uh, source that I used. Um, the St. Catherine's Poltergeist, Strange Going On at 237 Church Street, and it was written by Marcus Louth, and that was from 
ufoinsight.com. I don't know how reliable any of these sites are, <laughs> but this is this is where I, I ended up getting the majority of this. Other things came from like newspaper clippings that were available online, and there were a couple of uh, YouTube videos that I watched that mostly seemed to be the same YouTube video that had just been reposted by different accounts. Uh, those really didn't have any. They had more condensed versions than what was in the uh, the Rob McConnell X-Zone radio and TV show mm. uh, source that I found. So where were we? We were at the point where the kids had left yep. for the night. There was a bookshelf. Uh, there was a bookshelf. The bookshelf fell over. Oh, and the uh, Virgin Mary and the cross were not, uh, were not harmed or didn't seem to have anything you know, to do with anything. Nothing pushed him over. Really, was this like a specially blessed cross or a specially blessed pitcher? Because a lot of these things are just mass produced. A lot of crosses are probably coming out of factories in other countries. They have a police, do they have like a priest at the end of the line that is just doing a quick blessing as they all fall off the line before they're shipped out? Do they do a mass shipping, like a, a, a mass blessing on the boxes? How does that work? Does a lowercase t just keep ghosts away in general because of its shape. Remember, What's going on here? Uh, I remember there was a that reminds me of a similar argument. I forget where I'd overheard it about the the validity of, of you know people encountering um, supernatural events and their first instinct is if they don't have a cross on them just to make a cross with their fingers. Yes. And the idea of is that supposed to work as well as like you say something that is sacred, something that is blessed. The one thing I will say that, you know, while I don't know that the the stat the picture and the statue, the cross and the statue, or the the two items you mentioned there, um, it's possible that if this family has had sort of one on one, multiple one on one interactions with this Roman Catholic priest, um, you know, perhaps he did a little something something for them with those, you know, as as a way of offering some form of protection he may have shushed them up a little bit just for the family to say hey you know like while i'm not here let me let me do this for you to sort of help you know um keep you safe or you know give you peace of mind while i'm while i'm away all of these things or most of these things uh occurred reportedly in the presence of officers uh crawford here uh mckinnon if i'm pronouncing that correctly and college um Officer College, Richard College, not just in front of the college, <laughs> and multiple other witnesses, which include family, friends, and members of the clergy. But at some point, word of this gets out. They don't know where the leak came from. Could have come from anybody. Uh, the officers are probably going to keep it quiet, you think. Uh, Roman Catholic Church probably isn't going around saying, hey, we got a poltergeist over here. Uh, so it probably came from a friend or a family. But in any case, the newspaper showed up, local newspaper. Also, radio shows showed up, and as it caught on there, more and more people started to show up. They wanted to see what was going on. They wanted to see where the haunted house was, where the haunted kid was, and what was what was happening. So, in the local newspaper, the St. Catherine Standard, which still exists now as a local daily newspaper, printed a story titled "Ghostly Presence in an Apartment on Church Street," and eventually caught on radio shows picked it up like i said other newspapers picked it up across north america things were picking it up here and there and the place became a media circus family couldn't leave without being harassed 
in their apartment, people had to bring them things, had to bring them shopping. If they went out, people wanted to interview them. They wanted to get in their face. They were trying to uh, try any way they could to get contact and see what was going on with this thing. Uh, to the point that a lawyer acting on behalf of the family had to tell the media, make a statement that there would be no interviews. And after a reporter from the National Enquirer apparently tried to gain access by dressing as a nun, <laughs> the media was threatened, threatened with arrest if they did not disperse. I, I find it interesting that you have a reporter from the National Enquirer and, you know, you always, whenever you hear stories about the National Enquirer, you know, your first instinct as the stories they report and they put in their little tabloids have zero research at all. And yet here's a guy that wanted to research something for the Enquirer to the point where he went, quote unquote, undercover to to get a story that nine times out of ten, if you were even to look at the front cover of the of the uh the Enquirer, you think that they just made it up anyway. Yeah. And then that's why we get things like Bad Boy. Yeah. So, unfortunately, there wasn't a whole lot the officers could do about the poltergeist. You know, you can observe and report, but what are you going to arrest? Mm -hmm. Right? They did their report, which, again, we mentioned you can find on, uh, on Google, whether it's real or not. I don't know. But, you know, other than that, what are they going to do? Can't do anything, right? So... Apparently, at some point, to get away from it all, the family had uh, family members. I had run one thing that said it was a grandmother would they they went to stay with um, in Quebec. Mm -hmm. And when they left, nothing happened. Okay, so let's backtrack for a sec. If the belief is that the haunting was centered around Peter, yeah, was there any? reports or I guess evidence of there being more or less activity when he and his brother were sent away to stay with someone before the bookshelf was knocked over like is that where they first sort of got a sense that the activity diminished when Peter was not on the premises versus when he was if they the family goes away to Quebec and the haunting stops did they realize that because the similar thing happened during the brief time that the two brothers were sent to live or were sent to stay with somebody, you know, previously? Well, there's no mention of that previously. If they left and went somewhere else, there's no mention of Peter hanging out at his friend's house and things getting knocked over there. Mm -hmm. All the stories center around the 11th. The police officers showing up, mm -hmm. seeing what they saw, mm -hmm. keeping in contact with the family over the next few days, and then Peter goes to stay, well, the family, I guess, goes to stay in uh, Montreal, Quebec, with a grandmother or some relatives, and there are some unsubstantiated rumors that the occurrences followed them to Montreal, Quebec, but... Again, I think that's a situation where the story has been passed around enough that somebody has added to it retroactively mm. because there's no real evidence of that happening. There's no other witnesses saying that happened. It's just supposedly it followed them. And one thing I find interesting about this compared to other paranormal stories that I've heard talked about or read or, or listened to is that 
you have a story here that centers on these four policemen as witnesses. You have the Roman Catholic priest, also a witness. And they come in, as you said, you know, they, they do what they can, but they ultimately they can't arrest anything. So they leave. I find it interesting that in a story like this is one of the few stories, if not the only story I've ever heard, where you don't have an army of investigators, psychics, mediums, all these other people kind of coming out of the woodwork to, you know, find out what it is and, and get some answers in terms of like getting evidence, getting video footage, again, kind of going back to those, those other examples of poltergeists, whether it's in the States or in Great Britain. You know, which seem to be the only two places I ever read about actual poultry as cases. And and each of those and all of those stories, you end up with this parade of people coming through and staying in the house, living with the family. But yeah, it, it, I do find it interesting that whether it's because it's, you know, small town Ontario, whether this is because it's the 70s, whether it's because maybe this story didn't initially reach sort of the levels of notoriety that maybe other cases did you know you don't have this like i say this this army of 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 people showing i mean you had the media showing up you had press you had reporters you got the police officers yep but you know you don't have you know you don't have psychics and stuff showing up to try and sort of associate themselves with this to say oh you know i'm here now I'm I'm sensing this kind of spirit and you know you know trying like you don't have that that army of people trying to communicate with it to yeah. try and you know so it's kind of neat that this managed to sort of become a thing kind of hit its peak and then and then kind of fade out of the public eye without that you know without that that intense interest from the kind of the uh, I don't know if pseudo scientific community is the right way to put it but yeah, like like that 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 group of people that that seem to um, chase opportunities like this to again like associate themselves with it, become witnesses to something so that going forward they can say, oh yeah, you know, I can tell you all about it. I was there, you know, like I'll be interviewed, sure, you know, like you want to talk to somebody, talk to me. Um, so yeah, it's it's kind of neat that this this case kind of escaped that that level of attention. Yeah, and I think a lot of the other cases that you hear about um, that take place in the United States and Great Britain kind of have lived on because you have uh, you have those those ghost hunters who were there, yep. and then will continue to talk about it and, and then, write books and, and all of that stuff. Do and talks and from everything that I was able to read, there were no ghost investigators that showed up to this. In fact, the police, uh, according to the police. Um, things started to wind down. Mm. And by 28 days after it started... 28 days later. It was done 28 days later. But apparently 28 days later, I'm thinking from the 15th mm -hmm. of January, it was done. So when they were there on the 11th, things only continued to occur for another few days mm -hmm. Until 28 days go by, things slowly started to peter out. And then apparently, supposedly, everything just stopped. Hmm. Now, one of the police officers, for some reason, likes to or liked to point out that 28 days is a lunar cycle. 
Interesting. Okay. I don't know what that has to do with anything. Was it a full moon on the 15th? And then a full moon 28 days later, or it was mid moon to mid moon. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was no moon to moan, no moon. Maybe some, and maybe everybody was getting moaned. <laughs> don't know, but it was a lunar cycle. I don't really know if I think that has anything to do with anything. Yeah. It was the 70s. People believed a lot in astrology. And, That's you know, true. All that, all that stuff. Maybe, maybe it has something to do with it. Maybe it doesn't. But that was it. They experienced these things, they wrote a report on it, Mm -hmm. and then eventually it all slowed down and stopped. So that was in February of 1970. Yes. Do we know how much longer Peter's family stayed there? Or, like, are you saying that after, after the 28 days, the occurrences slowed down to a stop and then that family continued to live at that address like for another x amount of months or years just like un uh like unbothered like un unharassed i guess or did or did they did they move out of that place at this point now i don't have i don't have anything in my notes so nothing jumped out to me to do with that because well, he said um, with now the the moving to quebec is that that you're saying that that just was... went to stay with relatives oh okay yeah. so that wasn't they it's didn't okay. because there were so many so many media people there mm-hmm. and so many people from from the area were showing up to get a look at the haunted house that they were they were being bothered enough that they decided to take off for a little bit and then come back i think they went away for a weekend or something oh okay, and okay. they came back things had calmed down a little bit but yeah then everything had started to slow down and it eventually stopped. Hmm. And that's really, from what I can find, where this case ended. Interesting. So it wasn't even a sense of... It wasn't even a sense of the haunting stopped when Peter left. It's that it got to a point where Peter was still there, but whatever was affecting him had run its course or had, you know... Um... Sounds like, yes. Interesting. So now does that... Then lead, um, then lend credence to the idea that it was a ghost, a separate presence, or his latent psychic energy had just sort of dissipated itself. Yeah, I mean, not being an expert on latent psychic energy or how it works. Um, Maybe we got to get somebody in here who is. I would love to talk to somebody who is an expert on latent psychic energy. Yeah, just just to get a sense of of whether it has sort of a, a, a cycle, you know, whether it has a beginning and end. Because, um, you know, you, you hear that sort of thing all the time. Like, if I if I could just go back a step, how old did they say Peter was at the time? Eleven. Eleven. Okay. Now, because I guess my question is, you know, a lot of people always talk about how, you know, kids in general are, are much more open to you know, energies and things than adults are. And I didn't know if the same with this latent psychic energy, if there was a certain, like, if you just reach a certain age where it just hits its, it just hits its peak and then, and then kind of, like I say, fades out. Yeah, well, it faded out. Nobody reported any ghostly occurrences there publicly Mm -hmm. after that building still stands but Mm -hmm. reportedly the building itself isn't haunted but you bring up a good point do these things just peter out Mm -hmm. or just stop or what happens because in in most 
cases, I mean, sometimes these things will last for months, sometimes these things will last for years, and then it will just stop. Yeah. What causes it to begin, but also what causes it to stop? If it is a ghost, why why did the ghost decide, well, I've done what I needed to do, got my point across, um, I gotta go somewhere else and do something else now. And and that's and that's where you like going back to the idea of these paranormal investigators and these psychics and stuff, like a lot of the times they're you know, the role they try to play is oh you know if we can if we can communicate with it we can find out what it wants you know we can yeah. we can find out what its purpose is we can find out what it's trying to achieve because um, you know as you just mentioned you know for this ghost to be like well got my point across nobody knows nobody knows what that point was but you know what I I, I feel confident in that I've levitated enough stuff that they got the idea so I'm gonna move on um, you know and. Again, I don't know. I don't know at what point I should start or stop playing devil's advocate because when I think about things like that, I immediately start to question the idea of you know other stories, other tales of poltergeists and things like that, and the you know the the usual poltergeist playbook at some point has someone being possessed and when that possessed person starts to try to play the role of the spirit doing the haunting everything goes tits up because they can't do it convincingly or you know they they just make a mess of it and suddenly all credibility goes out the window because you have somebody start, you know trying to play the role of the spirit and just not doing a convincing job um, and again, you know, I look at things like the, you know, the Enfield or the Battersea, um, where if well, you have a young person who's being possessed, you have a young person playing, you know, a malevolent spirit in the way that only a young person can with a young person's intellect and a young person's knowledge, a young person's vocabulary, and it really kind of takes the wind out of the sail. So in a case like this where we don't have that element we don't have the researchers we don't have the psychics we don't have that that you know obligatory possession uh, where suddenly this the the spirit is vocalizing its intentions uh whether and i think i know exactly what you're talking about because yeah. battersea had battersea has all of those things yep. Yep. um you've got the investigator who seems to so so badly want it to be true yep. and then the further and further it goes they're getting this evidence and then suddenly there's historical actors who are coming into this and other uh the 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 ghost of the prince of france and the the daughter who it seems to be centered around is there's magazines in the in the living room that has a play or has a has a story about the Prince of France and suddenly it just shows up in this story it's almost like like there was nothing else to tell and and the investigator didn't want to leave and the little girl didn't want him to leave and just had to start inventing things and talking in this voice and mentioning these <laughs> names that she's just seeing around the house so that have, convenient that have absolutely no connection to the house or where this is happening yeah it's 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 well i mean there i mean historically speaking there might be a very thin thin razor thin connection 
um, to where they are, but nothing that would nothing that would satisfy you know any like a, a thorough explanation of, of why you know the prince, the exiled prince of the king of France is haunting the house of this. Like, anyway, to get back to get <laughs> to get back to Saint Catharines, yeah. I, Enfield is where all the French exiles went. Maybe <laughs> I don't know. But getting like just to, to revisit this idea of churchy, I, you know, not not to not to knock the story down, but I, I I do have to say that when I think about the lack of any sort of psychic researcher or mediums or anybody like that into, in, in, in being involved in this, I can't help but feel like that may have been a conscientious choice because you kind of have to keep the circle of witnesses small so that the story stays consistent so that everyone that is a very good point the script stays intact you don't have other people coming in and injecting insane details and additional you know um additional i guess background and throwing a story out of control um which again, again, seems to happen so often with these these cases where they get to a point that, you know, suddenly, you know, you have to have somebody get possessed, and you have to have somebody start offering up explanations and reasons and things like that, and, and trying to be the spirit. So, the lack of that in this case, I do think, both makes it more believable because you don't have that that very obviously human element to it but then it makes it less believable because you have a very tightly knit group of people who can create a narrative and then all agree to just zip the lip and let the story just be the story yes yeah yep now i i would say that anything that lends any sort of believability to this story is that it's not overly dramatized mm -hmm. it's not overly dramatic um, like you said, it's not following those beats that all the other ones seem to always follow. That's yeah. very Hollywood or or, or dramatized. Um, I think that the lack of psychic investigators can only ever make a story more believable mm -hmm. because a psychic can come in and say, I hear this. This is what's going on and you can't hear it. I'm the psychic. Yeah. I'm going to tell you what's going on and there's absolutely no way to verify anything that they say. <laughs> yeah. And they could absolutely say anything. Mm -hmm. absolutely say anything and there's nothing that you can say to to prove them wrong because they're the ones with the special ability yeah. and you're not and even if they say you know john brown is the ghost that's in here and he lived here for 10 years and he died of a heart attack on that spot in the in the, in the kitchen right there mm -hmm. there's nothing you can say even if john brown is never listed as an occupant of that building maybe he well no he lived there with a family and just was staying here <laughs> yeah you know they there's always there's always something that they can say that you can never disprove even if the building wasn't there for 10 years well there was another house here before and that's where he died etc etc so when psychics are not involved it can only ever make things believable in yep. my opinion even if they're unbelievable psychic is definitely not going to give it any more authenticity for me yeah and, and if i could if i could use this as as a lesson for for hollywood and, and hollywood if, if i could just 
speak to you in, in just just between you and me here. I'd, I'd like everyone in Hollywood to take this story. Are you listening, Hollywood? Are you please? You, please take this story and use it as a lesson. You know, use this to remind yourself sometimes that not every character, not every not every story needs a prequel. Not every story needs to have a backstory. Not every character needs to be analyzed to death and needs sometimes you just have to let things be. You let know? the story be the story when the story ends. Yep. Let it end. Yep. We don't we don't need a prequel about Peter. Nope. About Peter in kindergarten. Nope. And learning things about Peter we that we didn't need to learn because no, we don't need someone to. We don't need someone to to create a history of the building, create a history of the of the ground the building was built on, um, create a history of the city that the ha the land was in that the house was built on. Not not everything needs to be explained. Not everything needs an origin story. You know, take Peter for example. Here's a kid, January of 1970. He's 10 years old. He starts going through some stuff, you know, crazy things start happening, police get involved, the church gets involved, and then a month or so later, everything just fades away as quickly as it started. No one knows why it started, no one knows why it ended, and sometimes there's a beauty in that, that this is the kind of thing where you think, it, this is the kind of thing that could happen to anybody, and I think that's where the, the scariness of it, and where the the value of a story like this comes in because again there's no there's no absurd circumstances you know the kid wasn't the kid didn't throw eggs at a gypsy's house and get cursed the kid didn't find a medallion in the backyard and you know this kid just it, this kid was just patient zero for something that came out of nowhere and then disappeared and then you know it's that it's that randomness of, of this idea of something that could happen to anybody that I think makes this story so cool. And in the fact that it takes place in, let's be honest, Canada is not a country people pay a lot of attention to. And True. Ontario and St. Catharines, you kind of get like, kind of smaller and smaller to a point where you have a kid in a small town experience something for a short amount of time that was quite intense, completely unexplained. It started, it stopped. And, you know, like Rico was saying, the, uh, the story kind of faded into obscurity. It was strong enough that the people involved, they're not looking to make a thin dime yep. off of retelling it, off of exploiting it. You know, they know what they saw and it was powerful enough for them to say, yeah, you're like, I'm not interested in, 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 in providing any kind of comment on what happened. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that that lends a certain level of, of credence to it that, you know, sometimes when things happen that have no explanation like this, you know, it's it's more important to not go digging for an explanation. It's just to kind of have it be something that happened, and it's it's really fun to talk about. Um, but that's you know that's as far as you can go with it. Not everything needs an origin story. You know, Peter didn't have one. I have Googled the police report. Oh, okay. It just says police department. General Occurrence Report. Okay. There's no name for any city if it is a police report for the St. Catharines Police Department. Mm -hmm. You would think it would say St. Catharines Police Department. Now, the top of it does kind of look like it's a little cut off, but 
it doesn't look for for as close as the words police department are to general occurrence report below it mm-hmm. if it said st catherine's above it the way it's cropped you'd think that you would have seen the bottom of some of the lettering of st catherine's the name st catherine's would have to be up considerably higher to be uh, cut off by by the and, where it starts and i mean chime off in the comments if you're in law enforcement but uh i would expect there'd be some kind of a crest uh, some kind of an emblem that would denote this as being from a very specific, you know, jurisdiction. So here's here's what we have here. Um, it's hard to read because it's so small. It says, House Phenomenon. There's a date of February 10th, 1970, 237 Church Street. There is a name blocked out that says 11 years. I am assuming that that is the age of the victim. Um, Man, I really wish that this was like in high def or something so I can read what it says. Because I can see the typing that would, and this was done, it looks like, with a typewriter. Uh, But the the little sections that have their little headings where you put specific information, it's just too small to read even if you zoom in. It's just, it's not detailed enough uh but it does say this is not for press repeat not for press was that something that you put in your police report when you're doing it uh so in the actual report typed up it says i attend i attend this residence at the am time on the first call and was assisted by pc batarski B-A-T-O-R-A-S-K-I, it looks like it said. Atorsky? Oh, yeah. While I was there, in capitals, while I was there, I witnessed some phenomenal occurrences which I have attached to this report. That was the only sentence that was uh, all caps. Uh, At 9 p.m., I proceeded to the residence again with B.C. Crawford, where we again witnessed some very something's crossed out unusual things taking place between the time of the two calls i contacted mr bradley the city inspector we both agreed that the cause of these weird occurrences were in no way connected to the actual building structure itself my only solution to the occurrence that the boy peter all the occurrences surrounded has been inhabited by the spirit of poltergeist which again poltergeist is all capitalized this is a spirit which inhabits the body of a young child about to enter the phase of puberty and has been described as a mischievous spirit that does not generally seriously harm anyone. People who have witnessed these occurrences are PCs Weir, Crawford, I can't read Hel- that. Helen, Hel- Helenin? McCullinan? Oh, Mc- oh, that's an MC. Yep. Okay, I thought that was college a- and other PCs have attended. Briefly, this boy can sit on a chair without being thrown off and items are hitting hitting him for no apparent reason. I, the writer, witnessed the boy being thrown at least a dozen occurrences, oh, at least a dozen occasions, including while I was with PC Crawford. And in capitals attached is detailed report and witness names. Sergeant Taylor. What I find interesting too is that this police report, I mean, if that's what this is, do they often take the time to uh, explain what supernatural phenomenon is yes yeah i don't which know I, which i thought was kind of odd that you'd think that if you're saying it's a poltergeist 
that should be that should be enough. I mean, you shouldn't really need to say, "Hey, by the way, if you're reading this and you don't know what a poltergeist is, here's let, an explanation." Yeah, here's an yeah, explanation. This, this doesn't sound like it's specifically written for a police report. No, it sounds like it's written to back up a claim, and that's that's what it feels like to me. And most, and what's interesting is I don't. Again, I don't. You know, chime and chime chime off in the comments if you were working in St. Catherine's Media in the seventies. I don't know that police these reports typically had to be identified as not being for press. Yeah, and then to have that repeat, not for press, as if writing it once wasn't like, oh, they only wrote they only wrote not for press once. They didn't really. I mean, I know now when the police write a report, that is private. You give, you can give a copy of the report, I believe, to the individual so they have a copy of it or they can request one at a further date. They don't always get the copy of the report immediately. The police write the report. The police report stays in uh, either the court system or the police office. And when they write a press release, they write a specific press release. Yeah. Um, I don't know, in the 70s, maybe they're just handing out reports right and left. I don't think that was ever a thing, probably, at least in within the 20th century, that you would just be handing out reports. You would do a specific press release to release to the press, because you can't put names in there. You can see Peter's name is Peter's real name, is redacted, but mm. then below, when he writes out the uh, actual report, he gives Peter a name of Peter. Why wouldn't the report, why would the report state at the top a redacted name, but in the body of the report, not include that redacted name and make no reference to this is a pseudonym? This police report, you know, for being one of the few pieces of physical evidence to support this, almost raises more questions than answers. Yeah, I think, I think it's the only piece of evidence that I've come across for this literally the only piece of actual evidence it does look fairly generic i mean even just a quick google thing well well like you can you can bring up you know yeah like like templates a for... very a very generic template or anything so so what do you think now the podcast mm -hmm. is called i fought the lore that's true but in this case does the lore win I would, I would, I would have to say that in this case, the fact that people are still bringing it up as early as last year, the fact that no one has gone on to do speaking tours, any kind of a, a speaking engagements, no one's, no one's offering interviews about this. We're so conditioned to believe that people who have experienced things like this the next logical step for them afterwards is to say, hey, you know, um, you know, there was a chapter in my life that was very difficult to live through. Ergo, I'm going to try to monetize that and at least make the rest of my life better by speaking about my experiences for a fee. Whether that's to a book deal or a movie deal or some kind of a convention. The fact that that isn't the case here, the fact that these people have you know, they stepped into the spotlight briefly. They had their little flirtation with fame and from all accounts, um, shied away from it. Yeah. You know, I, I fought the lore, but in this case, the lore won. Even the people who were there, 
aren't talking about it and haven't talked about it for like 40 years there are it, it there's still something compelling enough about this that people you know, are still bringing it up now yep did did the lore win oh yes the lore won the lore we're still won. talking about it we are proof yep that the lore won out because as long as people are still talking about it yep the lore keeps on going all right so this is us signing out Ben and Rico. Ben and Rico Sweet. Signing out for I Fought the Lore podcast. We hope you enjoyed, and hey, uh, maybe one day we'll get a sponsor. Or maybe one day we'll get an actual listener. We'll see what happens. Maybe nobody will ever hear this. Fingers crossed. Finger, fingers crossed. You never get anybody, or fingers crossed we get somebody? Oh, at least one person. Oh, okay. At least one person. If you are the one person who's listening, thank you. You're the best. Signing out.